0: All right, this is episode number 68 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. We bring you the latest and the greatest in internet marketing every Monday morning at com slash podcast, iTunes, and on Stitcher Radio.
1: I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. And today I'm drinking a Moscow Mule. Surprise, surprise. And I am doing the same as well. I'm trying to recover from that torrential downpour, so I need a a quick pick-me-up with the Moscow Mule
0: I've already popped my caffeine pill uh, (laughs) for this episode, so I'm ready to go. I might be speaking pretty quickly.
1: We got a great lineup of things to talk about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I feel like we say that all the time, but we got some interesting ones: some studies, some case studies,
1: some tests. Your favorite. So let's just jump right into it. What are we talking about? All right, so we're gonna start off with a very interesting topic. Groupon tested de-indexing themselves from Google for a few hours. We're going to be talking about reviews. That's a very hot topic for many verticals out there. What do you need to take away from that? Characteristics of good headlines. How can you hook people in those quick five seconds as they come onto your properties? And then lastly, as Rob mentioned, we're going to get into some numbers and we're going to try to avoid some gotchas out there. I don't know who was popular saying the gotchas, but I'm stealing there. <laughs> catchphrase. So we're going to be getting into that. And I promise, even though it's statistics, I'm not going to put you to sleep. Rob, tell us what's happening in our favorite coupon purchasing site. I know my wife is a frequent group Grouponer. So what's going on over there? This
0: was a, I want to give credit where it's due. Fan shot this one in to me via email. And this was a really interesting article. This is posted on searchengineland.com. Obviously, again, we'll tweet out the link for those who want to read the in-depth story of what happened here. This is big news. Okay, so Groupon.com, everyone should be familiar with this. But the larger issue, which they wanted to set out to discover the true answer to, is, you know, since, what was this? It's been a couple years now that Google has been hiding refer data, right, for HTTPS Mm -hmm. connections. So we don't know. So for those who may not be in the know, traffic coming from Google may not appear as if it is coming from Google inside of your analytics platforms Number one, and chiefly, which was the first concern for a while, was that we don't know what keywords people are using. Then it was started to sort of show up as, I feel like we're not seeing people who are coming from Google as actually having come from Google. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're not getting any of that data. And for those people out there running search engine optimization crews at companies or agencies, it's hard to justify yourself when you don't know the real numbers. So they set out with this bold maneuver, and here's what their plan was. This is is bold. We're going to de-index ourselves from Google temporarily. They don't really go into how they set this up. I have a feeling they have a pretty close connection with Google, so Mm -hmm. it wasn't a huge issue. They're going to de-index themselves from Google, and they're going to see what is the impact on their traffic, direct versus organic, you know, in comparison, those channels inside Google Analytics or whatever analytics platform they're using. So they de index themselves. I think total downtime was, I'm looking at these charts, and it's only a few hours, Okay. So so ballsy to pull this move. It is. But pretty quickly they were back up and running. Well, so they say,
1: and the, uh, there's a big headline in this article: "Do not try this experiment <laughs> at home." Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. You know, I don't want to get into a ton of the stuff, but I'll just get straight to the sort of the headline, which is that this experiment has shown to them that up to sixty percent of what is reported as being direct traffic in your analytics platform. Is actually coming from organic search providers like Boom. Google and mm-hmm. Bing. Boom in your face. Can't trust your stats as much. You know, as much as you thought your domain name was amazing and your brand building right. was amazing, everyone was just typing it in. Nope, no, nope, nope, not at all. They're actually coming do from Google. Do people
1: actually still type in addresses? These days? I don't, I don't,
0: uh, I mean, I do if I'm familiar with the brand. I just go sure. straight there, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not Googling. That's like Googling Google to get to Google. Some people do that. I've seen that. Don't don't make fun. I've seen people do that. There are some other interesting things in here that I do want to mention, though. They do mention that there are some particular platforms and devices where this skewing of data is particularly intense. As an example, Internet Explorer, about 75% of the direct traffic from IE is actually attributable to organic search from Google. So even more than the 60%, IE tends to screw that up and not pass that information along as much as possible. Backing up a step, so where all this comes from is browsers reporting this information as well as Google sort of blocking it in its Mm -hmm. roundabout way. Um, So different platforms block information in different ways. About 10 to 20% of Firefox, Chrome, and Safari desktop traffic reported as direct is actually organic.
1: So more evidence that IE is terrible. Yes, so not
0: nearly as much there. So those are desktop things. Now, in general, mobile browsers are even worse at this, are not very good at reporting referrals from organic search mm-hmm. uh, as as well as everyone else. I mean, I guess that's to be expected. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at your mobile traffic and you're seeing you getting a ton of type-ins. That's probably actually not really the case so for those of you out there who are relying on your channel reports, where you're getting your traffic from, maybe making moves based on the fact that you get a lot of direct ins or things like that. Or you think. Exactly. This is definitely something to check out. Again, don't try this experiment at home, but there's some interesting data in there. And I think that knowing some of these things, you can dig down and create some cool segments inside Google Analytics that will help
1: you get a better idea of is this actually direct and organic? I think one thing in the article that really highlights the point you just made is they took a look at what they classified as, in air quotes, long URLs. So Mm -hmm. these are URLs that are actually being at least one subfolder into the domain. So maybe it's Groupon slash Coupon slash something else. So they took that bucket of URL traffic and they found that on average, 60% of those the direct traffic is actually organic so they found that not only are there some struggle points there but particularly once the url starts getting longer for some reason they're seeing that trend of direct traffic is actually more organic and to your point I think that you can make some segments within your data platforms to take a step back and apply some common sense logic in the fact of obviously people create bookmarks and things like that, but how often are you going to find that someone's going to directly type in a pretty long URL? I'm not going to just sit on my phone and type something in that's quite long. So there is some data points in this article that will trigger some thoughts in your mind that we might not necessarily have a clear picture and be risky enough to run something like Groupon has done. But I think there are some common sense triggers now that might come out of this article for you that says, okay, let's go ahead and make an assumption that maybe half of this traffic is organic. And we know that just looking at this data set logically most people probably aren't just typing this out on their keyboard and remembering it just off the top of their head. So definitely worth a read. A lot of small nuggets in here as well. But Yeah, one thing to that point, though, with
0: long URLs and people not typing them in, I do this a lot, I know, on Chrome here, because if I've been to a URL before, mm-hmm. it remembers it, so I just drop it down, and right. it sort of counts as a direct. So that is one thing, but that I think, again... That's a small percentage of people out there who sort of account for that. Mm-hmm. I think you have a great point. I mean, if you have a URL that's you know fifty words long, people aren't typing that in, right? So if you're
1: some people might have it bookmarked. or To, to right. your point, it's auto completing. But, but I, but what's I wouldn't percentage, imagine. Of that? Yeah,
0: I wouldn't yeah. imagine that would be a significant enough percentage to make business decisions based on traffic you see who shows up like that. So. Anyway, great article, um, some really cool insights. It's really too much to sort of cover, lots of different little smaller points that Mm -hmm. I think people should be aware of. But the big
1: point to take away is you need to really always be looking at your data critically and understand that even in the day and age where you think you can track a lot of things, there are some missing gaps and you just need to be aware of some of the pitfalls, which we'll get into later on uh, about data. Um, But just understand there are some limitations out there and you need to be comfortable with them as much as possible or understand those limitations.
0: Moving on, tell me all about how important reviews and testimonials are for my brand online.
1: Okay, so we're going to be talking about some survey data. You know how we love talking about this type of stuff and and we'll squash it now, but this one's actually pretty decent. So this is actually a survey conducted by Bright Local and a decent sample size. They talked to 2,100 participants in this Survey and just for because we have quite a few international listeners, actually, so just be mindful that this survey is 90% U.S. participants, 10% Canadian. There's no people from over the pond, and they also went into maple syrup territory and got some people <laughs> as well. But the point of the survey was really to look at. What is the impact to local reach and things like that? Because that's really what Bright Local obviously specializes in. But particularly one of the items that we wanted to look at was review usage online. Now, part of this is a generational thing. I look at some of the older people and how they conduct themselves online and reviews are still newer aspects of the online experience for them. Whereas I feel like the younger crowd, and I don't really know where the age cutoff is, but used to that as an online decision-making process. That aside, what they're finding is that the amount of people using reviews is steadily climbing. And particularly when they're looking at local businesses, they found that this year 88% of people have read online reviews to determine the quality of local businesses versus a lower 85% in 2013. So we're seeing some steady growth there. Now what they're also reporting, and this is even a higher divergence, is more people are starting to read reviews on a regular basis. And also they're seeing a drop of people that do not read online reviews, which makes sense. What I found even more interesting is how the consumption rates are changing over time. So in two areas, we're finding decreased consumption. So they split users into a couple categories. Consumers said they read up to six reviews before they made a decision that they can trust the business. They read up to 10 reviews or they read 20 plus. Apparently, these people have a lot of time on their hands. And so what we found is actually in the six and 10 bucket, we found some decreases year over year. So we fell from 77% to 67%. So 10% absolute points falling on relying on six reviews to make that choice. We dropped down from 92% to 85. 10 was a cutoff for me. But we saw multiple times percentage point gain from 2% to almost 8%. Now they need up to 20 reviews to actually make that determination. So more people are starting to migrate in. A few is not enough. I need to have a lot of social reinforcement to your points. I think it was an episode ago about the psychology of marketing. I need that social reinforcement even more now because more and more people are having these reviews online. So quickly, how many on
0: average reviews would you say you look at slash read slash whatever when you go to buy something online?
1: What I tend to do when I'm reading reviews is actually search the reviews. So I read less reviews, but I find that more and more sites are allowing me to search reviews for what I need, which is what I typically tend to do. I need usually 3 to 4 depending on what I'm trying to buy, but like for an example, when I'm going on Amazon, who's, you know, well-known for their review ecosystem, oftentimes I don't scroll through the reviews. My first action is to search the reviews for particular keywords that I'm interested in. So for a perfect example, we bought a new mixer recently for the podcast. And one of the the things that I was looking for in particular was the noise level. So I read some articles online about good mixers. And when I went to Amazon, saw a lot of reviews, the first thing I did was actually go in and search the reviews for noise and filter down kind of the reviews that were most relevant to me. So I feel like my own consumption patterns are changing and that my time's precious to me. So I want the reviews that are most relevant to me. So it's not necessarily a number, for me, it's just more, does that tell the story that I, I need to know?
0: Here's how my, and this is maybe kind of interesting. I got sucked into reading a bunch of reviews. I, re- I bought a bunch of things this week on Amazon, so I was shocking. This is highly relevant to me right now. My habits have changed a lot r- lately, and here's, here's kind of what I do on Amazon. So I don't even bother really, I mean, I'll read the most helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. Amazon has that sort of rating system right. thing. I'll read the most helpful. Then what I'll do is I'll immediately click on the one-star reviews, if there are any, mm-hmm. and read those. Okay. And if they're from psychos or you know people who don't understand that a rating is actually f- if you've actually used the product because <laughs> you just don't <laughs> right. like it or the whatever company. it is, I'll read those critically and then maybe bump up to two stars if there aren't enough. But I'll also read the reviews of the reviews oh. because Amazon lets you do that too. Right. So that's another insight into people... I mean, obviously people have too much time on the internet because you're writing like very well thought out like reviews of reviews and having conversations in here. And I mean, not to knock these people, I really greatly appreciate it. But that has sort of gone where I go, because I have this feeling that people online rate shit too often as four and five stars, making reviews become worthless almost right. in a way. And I want to read the very critically negative one and two stars are these actually valid one or two stars? Or are these just the opposite of the four and five star psychos? They just rate everything one and two stars because right. they hate their lives and hate everything <laughs> right. around them.
1: Well, and I think it'll be interesting. You know, I, I don't know if I talked about it on the podcast recently, but obviously reviews, you know, businesses are you know attuned to what is important to their customers, mm-hmm. and reviews are obviously one that you can pick up and, and can tell lead to people coming in. Also search engines are valuing reviews, you know, Google Plus pages and things like that now rank really highly for people that have reviews and things like that. But I wonder when we'll get to a point where internet users will become savvy enough to do some of the things that we're talking about, but also pick up on the fake efforts that are out there as well. Like I recently got my car tended and noticed that a lot of the companies here locally have paid some firm to go and create a bunch of fake reviews out there and so there's a there were standardized templates of reviews made by Eastern European people that have one review to their account and it mm-hmm. you know that's the only action it was very blatant right. that they were fraudulent so it'll be interesting to see you know where reviews go in the future and you know how that evolves What what is interesting and we'll wrap up with this is that, and I struggle to find that this is actually true, is that they claim eighty eight percent of consumers say they trust online reviews as much as personal recommendations. I just find that, well, I and will I trust say them more. It depends on who I'm talking to in real life. Most people in real life, I think, are idiots. (laughs) True. Yeah. So the anonymity of the internet helps mask your bias going into If I saw these people in person, I'd be (laughs) like, I don't trust what you're saying at all. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's some key insights there. Obviously, from businesses, you'd have to be an idiot not to know that reviews are important. But I think, you know, taking into account what, uh, you know, Rob was talking about, I think really stressing honesty with some of those reviews. But, you know, again, it's not something that you can really ignore. And more and more people are turning to reviews to make decisions But also, if you paid attention to that article as well, they need more of that social reinforcement to make those decisions. So if you're someone that just has a few reviews out there, looking at your competitive landscape, you might be outpaced by quite a large margin by your competitors. And you need to pay attention to that, that even though you're like a five-star vendor or a service or a company, if someone else has more reviews out there, and even if their rating is a little bit lower... People might find more trust in that company because they feel like there is more tested, or they've proved themselves more. They have a track record that they can trust. So, just keep that in in mind as you are concocting up your marketing schemes for 2014. All right. Good headlines. How can we hook, line, and sync those new customers, Rob? Tell us.
0: I don't want to spend too much time on these. This article in particular. I don't. I don't know. I. This is a link bait article. I guess I got sucked into it because mm-hmm. now I'm talking about it. Shout out to conversionxl.com. This is where I'm ripping it from. Baiter. Yeah. I think this is actually maybe even a guest article or something. This is guest written by Is it 20 pages like most uh, Yeah, it is. <laughs> There's about fifty images in it. Guest written by Neil Patel of Kissmetrics Crazy Egg. All right, so let's get into it. Five characteristics of high converting headlines. Number one which I think everyone is aware of at this point in time. I remember five years ago or so, back in my old MEC Labs days, <laughs> this was a huge one that we used in paid search ads to kick ass. Lie? Well, I still sort of <laughs> stretch the truth in your paid search ads. But characteristic, and they're kind of trying to be funny here, I guess, characteristic five, they have numbers. So headlines with numbers, I guess, have been proven to increase conversion and click-through rates. It's clearly the case in paid search ads i mean i think it's more that, of
1: a reflection of people don't like reading <laughs> and numbers yeah, well, are easy hey, to digest hey and
0: this uh, getting into the psychology Joking of aside, each one of these right yeah, yeah i mean i'm not sure seriously. what the what the reasoning is behind it but it's clear to me that including numbers and headlines in some way increases click-through rates actions whatever it is you want people to do i mean hell you could just look at websites like huffington post or any of those i don't want to compare huffington Post to i mean it kind of is in the same line but uh, all those crap social media news bs sites that have fake news on them they always say things like seven problems you know you can f- solve with this magical pill you know they all have headlines that say things like that that's because, I mean, those types of things get people's attention. Right. When you quantify things easily for people, their frame of reference is sort of set and they mm-hmm. understand what they're getting themselves into.
1: Word of caution there, just because you put numbers, understand that you work in a competitive landscape. Right. So if that's not competitive, you might want to forego your numbers. But also you're well, going to set, yeah. as, as with any marketing message, you're setting expectations. Mm-hmm. So... When you use numbers, things like that, or with any marketing message, making sure that you're following up on the next steps.
0: And something about numbers, which I think we
1: learned again back in our
0: Mech Labs days when we used to be young Bucks in this testing industry that we're in. Specific numbers mm-hmm. can work in your favor. So instead of saying
1: one a, million, a million plus million people, yeah.
0: saying one million 300 and whatever the hell your actual yeah. number is, say more that. unbelievable believable and yeah. sticks out more. Exactly. It doesn't sound like you're just making up shit by saying you have more than a million. You actually have a number. All right, moving on. Characteristic number four, they have between five to nine words or 16 to 18 words. The five to nine makes sense to me. Sure. I've read other research that says things like, Actually, they're, they're quoting this research in here. The number of objects you can actually keep in your mind and in, in mm. memory that you can actually use right. currently like is, is seven, memory? give or take a few, right? Interestingly enough, it's centered around how long a phone number is. I don't know if that's coincidence or if that's some sort of bias in the research. Mm-hmm. But seven things is what I've sort of known is you can only remember seven things, right? So headlines apparently that have roughly seven words in them are easier for people to understand and easier to comprehend and and take actions on. That's number four. Number
1: three. Ooh, one thing that is interesting, which I think some people need to take into consideration. They do talk about the ideal length sometimes changes depending on what language you're dealing with as well. What And so there is some research around potentially cultural influences for reading habits that you might need to pay attention to as well.
0: Also, how many lines you're writing on, right? That's true. You've got line breaks in there. That throws a wrench into mm-hmm. everything.
1: That might be dependent on the platform in which your marketing message mm-hmm. is going out yeah. as well. But.
0: Characteristic number three, they are negative. Because we are things. negative people. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to do in life is mm-hmm. just be negative about everything. But yeah. headlines that are negative grab people's attention. Because uh, it's opposite, I guess, of what your expectations would be. When you read a headline that says, never do this, instead of do this, Mm -hmm. wow, that grabs your attention.
1: It's like, oh, man, I need to pay attention to that. Uh,
0: This goes back into my psychology. Again, episode number 67. You need to listen to that one where we talk about loss aversion. Oh, yeah. Because negative things uh, really get people's attention. All right, characteristic number two. They have two parts. So a punchy headline and then a sub-headline that drives that shit home. Okay. Right? So set it up and slam dunk it. Boom. That's a perfect way to put it. Alley-oop. Yeah, I think I got that's the alley, I The alley-oop headline and then <laughs> the dunk. In your face. Break the butt. <laughs> that's quoted. <laughs> Bearded marketers. <laughs> and then last but not least, they are very, very clear. You know, this should make sense to most <laughs> people. This one's hard to sort of put a scientific basis behind. I mean, I don't know how you objectively judge something as being clear or not. Mm-hmm. And sort of prove that, oh, yeah, this headline was more clear. So, you know, it performed better. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense to me that if you have a, with the caveat of if you have a good offering, clarity is better than a bunch of bullshit.
1: Well, and I think that is because you get more qualified clicks into your marketing campaign. Yeah. So, what we find in a lot of our testing is oftentimes we can find that we can increase clicks to certain things by being more vague or changing up our marketing messages, but not necessarily increasing the people coming into the funnel means that we're garnering more sales. And I think that sometimes when you are more clear, you are setting better expectations for what the users are coming into, are expecting or believing. And as long as you're following up with that, I think that that's where the conversion piece comes in and that you've more effectively communicated to those people. So you get less people that... You know, I kind of call it this investigative click. Like, I'm not really sure what they're talking about, so I'm just going to click and maybe learn some more about it. But they were so vague in their marketing message. It was enough to maybe get me interested, but I don't really know what their offer is. And because I haven't done anything to qualify that lead or communicate a value proposition, I've gotten this person in that was really no use to me and now cost me something. So being clear sometimes can maybe decrease initial outreach or mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. But really increase our conversion rate.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. I have my business statistics two book in front of me, my textbook. Okay. I kept it. Did you dust it uh, And I'm ready. Talking? I have the notes in the margin, the doodles mostly <laughs> that I took during that <laughs> class. So I'm ready to go to school okay. with Corey Trent. Teaching statistics of testing.
1: So this was actually prompted. I was conducting some test training internally at one of my jobs this week where I was imparting some A-B testing knowledge to people in the corporation. And it spurred an interesting conversation where I was discussing with people, how do we arrive at confidence in testing? And this is kind of a murky question in the testing world because we have a lot of tools out there that will tell you what is sample size and things like that, and how long I should run tests, is my data that I'm looking at statistically significant, things like that. So I wanted to give some quick tips to people on how to perhaps run more successful tests, but also not run tests that maybe give you bad data that you then rely on for business decisions that is backed by terrible data. So, and the reason why that is, is because testing to me is a very dangerous industry to be in because a lot of times businesses work on assumptions and most of the time we know that we know we think it's the right way to do something, but there is something in the back of our mind. You know, this is an assumption that I have based on what I know about our customers or our business or whatever. What testing can sometimes do, which is what you have to be careful of is you test a business question or a hypothesis, you run a test and you run it poorly, and now you have data to back up this decision, but the data that you have is terrible, but you are very confident in this decision because you feel like there are real numbers and statistics behind it. So many times it's more difficult to undo Mm -hmm. that cultural decision or that precedent that you set in a business because you are even more confident in it, excusing the pun. So that's why you really have to set good practices and understand the math behind testing and ensure that you don't take shortcuts because it is very dangerous and can really create precedents in your business that are difficult to undo. That aside, two things I wanna cover particularly today, which is sample size and significance. So sample size is gonna be a calculation of how many people based on how you expect this test to perform, you will need to expose to potentially arrive at results that you can trust are giving you a significant change in your data. So what do we mean by this? Let's say you're testing a checkout page. You need to look at how does that checkout page perform today and how many people arrive there and how much you expect this new checkout page to perform. You plug that into some statistical models that are out there, really easily accessible. We'll probably have a tool up soon. If you want to go to evanmillers.org, he has some good tools out there as well. You plug that in and that should be what you should anticipate to run for your test. And don't take any shortcuts. Run that amount of people through your test. Make sure you do your homework and ensure that that's the baseline you're going to be working with. You're going to set that as test rule number one. Number two, you're going to run your test long enough to where you get your confidence index is what you've established internally. Most companies use 95%. This is the percentage that most testing tools report on. And that essentially tells us that we have measured enough people to be confident that this change in the data that we are seeing is not based on chance. But that is not necessarily always calculated with sample size in mind. So just because we have arrived at 95% confidence in our data, based on that change, that does not mean that we've run enough people through that test to ultimately be confident in that data set. And you'll notice this if you run tests, sometimes you'll reach confidence in like a day or two. And that is not necessarily full statistical confidence in your data set. That's only telling you that for the time period that we have run this, we've noticed enough change that can't be through random chance, but that does not mean that you've fulfilled the sample size requirement to running enough people through your test to ultimately be confident that we can make a good business decision on that. So make sure that you're looking at both of those when you're running tests. And I think that ultimately you're gonna make decisions based on testing that will hold up better over time. And we'll get into this maybe in a a video, I think. This would be a prime candidate for maybe doing a one-off to explain more into the numbers. But I did want to enlighten some people because we have gotten some questions about that. So that's going to do it for us on this episode number 68. Thank you so much for your time. If you like the episode, share with a friend, a colleague, as Rob would say, a lover perhaps. And as Rob mentioned also early on the show, we love hearing from you, the listener. So if you have a topic for us, Feel free to send it in. We're active on Twitter, or you can reach us, the website, thebeardmarkers.com, or you can give us a call at 904-270-9603. Rob waits by the phone day and night. Also, if you found value in the episode, please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot. It helps us reach other people. Uh, and just, again, we would love to hear the feedback on the show. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you next week. This is Corey and Rob, and we'll see you next time. Ciao.